0: You're listening to TIP.
1: Hi there, welcome back to the Richer, Wiser, Happier podcast. In today's episode, we're going to explore an extremely important topic that I think is critical for anyone who's trying to build a successful career, particularly in intensely competitive fields like business and investing. The question is this, how can you perform at an exceptionally high level in a way that's truly sustainable? I think we've all wrestled with this question at different times in our lives. We know that we've got to push ourselves hard to succeed, but how hard? What if you drive yourself so hard that you become physically or emotionally exhausted and burn out? What if you perform fantastically at work and earn a fortune, but you're running so fast that you end up neglecting or sacrificing other aspects of your life that also matter, including your physical health or your peace of mind or your friends and family? Over the last three decades, I've interviewed a lot of great investors who've made billions of dollars in the markets but have pretty awful personal lives that I wouldn't really envy for a minute. As I mentioned in my book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, one thing that's striking to me is just how many of the best investors have ended up getting divorced. So it's clearly not easy to achieve great financial and professional success in a balanced and sustainable way that allows us also to be calm and healthy and happy and pretty decent to the people around us. So what's the solution? Well, that's really the central focus of today's episode of the podcast, which is all about how to achieve sustainable excellence. Our guest is Daniel Goleman, who's a world-renowned expert on high performance. Dan earned a PhD in clinical psychology from Harvard and spent about 12 years as a science reporter at the New York Times. He then became famous as the author of a massive international bestseller, titled Emotional Intelligence, which has been translated into something like 40 languages. It's one of the most influential business books of all time, because it led millions of readers to realize that emotional intelligence, or EQ, may actually matter more than IQ once you're out of school and in the workplace. Dan has continued to build on those findings, studying outstanding performers at some of the world's most successful companies, and also drawing on the latest research on behavioral psychology and the brain. He's also gone very deep as a practitioner of meditation over the last half century or so, and has written extensively about the scientific research on how to use meditation to change your brain and body. The good news is that he's now co-authored a new book titled Optimal, which explores how individuals and organizations can sustain excellence every day. In today's conversation, Dan talks in detail about how we can apply this optimal yet sustainable approach in our own lives. Among other things, he explains how to handle stress and increase our emotional resilience, how to manage our emotions so we can make more rational and clear-headed decisions, how to enhance our creative thinking by allowing ourselves time to relax, how to become a better and more empathetic listener, how to give more effective feedback, and how to strengthen our ability to focus and remain calm and concentrated in an increasingly distracted and fast-paced world where it's easy to lose our heads. Personally, I've found this conversation hugely helpful, and I hope you'll see why I've come to regard Dan as one of the wisest and most thoughtful people I know. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: You're listening to The Richer, Wiser, Happier Podcast, where your host, William Green, interviews the world's greatest investors and explores how to win in markets and life.
1: Hi, folks. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome my friend Daniel Goleman back on the podcast. As you know, Dan published a seminal book, Emotional Intelligence, back in 1995, I think, which has since sold some outrageous number of copies, more than 5 million, I think, before people started to lose count. And Dan has now co-authored a new book on emotional intelligence, which is titled, Optimal, How to Sustain Personal and Organizational Excellence Every Day, which is being published on January 9th. So we're going to speak in some depth about how to harness the skills of emotional intelligence to become more productive, happier, more effective, and the like. Dan, it's wonderful to see you.
2: William, it's so uh, much a pleasure for me to be with you, even by Zoom on a podcast. Uh, and uh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you.
1: I, for me. I really appreciate it. It's a delight. So I wanted to start by asking you what actually is an optimal state and how it differs, say, from a flow state, which is the ideal that I think a lot of us yearn to achieve.
2: Well, let me start by describing uh, attributes of the, of the optimal state and then contrast it with the flow. You know, when you're in your optimal state, you're most highly productive in doing whatever it is you do. And, you know, for an executive, it's one thing. For, uh, you know, a single parent of four, it's folding laundry. It doesn't matter what it is. It's the internal state. You feel really good uh, that day while you're doing it. You're satisfied with what you did. You're effective. You make good decisions. You're creative. You have a lot of small wins towards some larger goal. These are all attributes of the optimal state. I contrast it with the flow state because flow is that one time you were fantastic. You outdid yourself, but you can't make it happen. It's not something that you can put together ingredients and be sure it will happen. And also, uh, people get into kind of self-critical state around the fact that they're not in flow, which I think is destructive. Uh, you don't find it in the optimal state. There's no critical self-talk. Uh, you lose yourself in what you're doing. You're fully focused, which is also a characteristic of flow. But in the original research on flow, which was done at the University of Chicago, they saw that focus and concentration as an epiphenomena, a side effect of flow. We see it, and when I say we, I'm talking about myself and my co-author at Rutgers, we see it as a doorway into the optimal state. Focusing, we can all focus better, we can learn to focus better. And I think that's a key part of learning to be at your best.
1: Yeah, I was struck, there's a line in the book where you say, the the optimal standard lets us relax and enjoy what we're doing without constant self-judgment, just quiet that critical voice inside your head and focus on the task at hand. And I I think about this a lot and wrestle with it a lot, because there's a part of me that wonders about the benefits of having this somewhat brutal, self-lacerating, critical internal voice, like this kind of extremism. And then on the other hand, and, and I see this with great investors, right? On the one hand, you know, I interviewed this guy, Rick Reader, who manages something like $2.6 trillion. I think he manages more money than anyone else in the world. And he basically sleeps like four hours a night, and he's like an extreme athlete. And then, on the other hand, you have someone like Tom Gaynor, who I've mentioned to you before, who's the CEO of Markel, who says, no, steady incremental progress is much more sustainable. And so I'm sort of torn here, like, how do you decide if, I mean, because some of these people who really want to be extraordinary, isn't it kind of helpful to be a little brutal to yourself, a little intense, or, or is that just not sustainable?
2: Well, I think the key here is sustainability. Uh, if you're constantly self-critical, if you only look at how you screwed up, what you did wrong, and how to right, uh, that's a uh, actually a diagnostic for being a perfectionist. And perfectionism is great on the one hand, and terribly self-destructive on the other. The way it's great is you're always pushing yourself to do better. The way it's not great is you're always pushing yourself to do better. And what I mean by that is you see you focus on what you did wrong, not what you're doing right. It's, and sustainability means you do what you're doing right all the time and relax about it instead of getting anxious or uptight or self-critical about what you uh, could do better. It's not that you don't continually approve, but you don't beat yourself up. And it's the beating yourself up. For example, if someone is sleeping four hours a night, and working all the rest of the time, what's happening in their personal life? You know, do they have a series of marriages that end in disaster? Do they see their kids? Do they see the people they love? Do they have time or uh, schedule time to do the things they love to do? Uh, That's an important question because it has to do with how the body is wired. Our body is meant to arouse itself. The experience is maybe getting upset or getting Maybe angry or dissatisfied or anxious, and then recover from that because it takes a toll. It takes a toll on your health directly. When you're upset, it means that you're secreting adrenaline, cortisol, stress hormones, and they uh, eat away at your immune system. They have very bad effects on your cardiovascular health, uh, and they may help you get the job done in the short term but they're not sustainable in the long term. So I really advocate a sustainable best, that optimal state, rather than pushing yourself to be better than I ever could
1: be. Clearly that applies for most of us who just want to be really, really good at what we do. Does this apply also to the sort of one-off, slightly freakish, brilliant types? Because if you're an, an Elon Musk, or you're a, a Steve Jobs, or or you're a Serena Williams or something, do you, do you not need to be pushing yourself to the absolute extreme? Or is it, I mean, are there, are there rules where this almost doesn't apply because you're so extreme as a, as a high performer?
2: Well, let me ask you a question, William. You have interviewed in your wonderful book uh, uh, richer, happier, wiser, I think it's
1: called. Thank you. You know, you know, you did way better than Charlie Munger who said richer, wiser, and so forth, which, which I thought was <laughs> a lovely, a yeah. lovely, uh so,
2: uh, so you interviewed people who are enormously successful as investors. Are they uptight about it? Are they driving themselves? Are they more relaxed? Is it, let me ask it a different way. Yeah. This is this very ingredient in success in that domain?
1: It's a very interesting conundrum because there are people like Peter Lynch, who's legendary from Fidelity, who really, he said to a, a friend of mine, Bill Miller, who's a legendary investor early in Bill's career, he said, look, there's, there's really only one gear or maybe two gears, there's sort of full speed ahead and then stop. And so Peter Lynch went at this blazing pace for about 13 years, beat the market, ha- had this legendary outperformance, and then was kind of done. And had to retire, and has been out of the game just as a sort of elder statesman and an author for decades, and um, and so in some ways, it it sort of that that example would affirm what you're saying that it's hard to sustain that blistering pace. But then there are people like this guy Will Danoff, who's a who's a legendary investor at Fidelity, one of Peter Lynch's successors, actually, who. I, I remember when he met Bill Miller, something like 30 years ago, Bill held out his hand and they're good friends now. And he said, uh, hi, Will, nice to meet you. And Will Danoff didn't extend his hand and said, I'm going to beat you, man. I'm going to beat you. And so I think there is some aspect of that success that is this ferocious intensity and drive. And then, and so I'm really wrestling with this question. I, I don't have a, I don't have a strong bias either way.
2: You know, it raises the question of what's true wealth. Is it just how much money you make or how you, what kind of life you live or both? And can you make a ton of money and have a rich life? Or is it one or the other? Or is it, you know, I, I, I personally would rather have a satisfying life and satisfying accomplishments than be the, like, tip top of the game.
1: It's interesting because, I mean in many ways, you are the tip top of the game as a nonfiction author. You, you've had enormous success, but I wonder if, um, you know, you don't, you don't have the same intensity as some of the authors who are just sort of pumping out stuff and care about their brands and stuff. It feels like you've always had this meditative life, this balanced spiritual life. So, you're an unusual case yourself, aren't you?
2: Uh, perhaps so. I mean, Many people who have a business bestseller, and I had a series of those, then start a company or try to market something based on that. I never did that. Uh, and I always thought it was more interesting and more satisfying to uh, have time for retreats, have time for my family, uh, than to go off and, you know, kill myself trying to get a business going. So, yeah, I, I might be an unusual case. On the other hand, I've studied uh, companies, organizations that are highly successful. This is different than highly successful investors. This has to do with whether the leader is emotionally intelligent, whether they can pervade the organization at different levels of people being also emotionally intelligent. And it turns out that correlates with business success. I'm thinking of progressive, used to be progressive insurance, now just progressive. And um, they're famous for this series of commercials that's been running for more than two decades with this woman, I forget her name, who represents progressive. Uh, but during that time, the person who was in charge of customer relations, who I, the people that actually sell insurance, was a huge advocate of emotional intelligence. He said, look, this is a relationship business we have to manage our relationships well. And I think that takes emotional intelligence. So we offered training to his people. And what's important is he was someone from the business side saying this matters here. And I think that's crucial too. If it's only from HR, forget it. And by the way, this matters to investors. I'll tell you why. There was just an article in one of the recent Harvard Business Reviews aimed at investors that said, you know, it's not enough just to look at the numbers, which you know, which is very standard in investing. Look at the people too. Because if you want long-term success, you're going to want to have effective leadership and you want to have effective people at every level. And it's it's human capital too. That's what the article said. You can't in this day and age, everyone's looking at the numbers. Look more deeply. Look in the organization. Uh, and see what kind of leadership they have. Are they going to be there for the long run? It's kind of the tortoise and the hare. Can they have a spectacular quarter or quarters? Uh, Do they do it by burning people out? In emotionally intelligent organizations, when you have a performance review, they ask not only did you get your numbers, how did you get your numbers? Did you do it in a way where you stress people out? Did you do it in a way where your most talented people are going to want to leave because they hate you? That's an important question. I I'm thought it was interesting
1: it. also, you mentioned briefly in the book a dinner that you'd had with Mark Benioff, the CEO and founder of Salesforce. And he, he talked about the four Qs, right? I don't know if you remember this. So this in Q, it includes IQ, so obviously intelligence. And then he talked about EQ, obviously emotional intelligence, that, that's your great expertise. But then he also talked about CQ, creative intelligence. And then SQ, which he he talked about as as purpose and spiritual intelligence. How how do you? I mean, having spent time with someone like Benioff and spent time at Salesforce, sort of seeing a little bit of the culture there. How how does how does he sort of lend credibility in a way to this argument that it's got to be about more than just sheer drive and intensity?
2: So Mark is an interesting case because I think he has both strengths. I think he uh, drives himself. But he takes time to relax he meditates every morning uh, and that's an important part his spiritual life is important to him too and uh, i see that uh, in data in terms of whether someone who's in a leadership position can articulate a higher purpose or mission that resonates that they believe in that moves them and articulate in a way that resonates with other people that is inspiring. And we have data that shows it creates the most positive emotional climate. And that's how you get the best out of people.
1: You also have a very interesting quote in the book from Cicero, the Roman statesman and author who I had to read as a teenager in, in Latin, no less. Uh, I can't remember any of it. So he, he was born, I think, about 160 BC or something. There's a beautiful quote that's attributed to him. And like most quotes, we have no idea whether it actually was him. But he said, um, Only the person who learns to relax is able to create, and for them, ideas reach the mind like lightning. I thought that was fascinating as well, that you, if you're so intense that you never take time off, it's actually, it's going to be hard to have that kind of creativity.
2: The research on creativity says Cicero was right in this respect. If you ask successful entrepreneurs, and I've seen data on this, how do you make decisions they say that they gather information widely, actually more widely than other people would. They, uh, other people might not bother with things that don't seem relevant. You never know. So the first stage of creativity, research shows, is to get all the best information you can get. And then the next stage is counterintuitive. It's let go. It's relax. Go for a walk. Uh, because that lets another part of your brain engage Which actually has wider connectivity. And then you can, you're more likely to come up with two elements that are useful, that are applicable, that have never been put together before. That's the creative insight. And then you go back to that first mode to execute on it. So Cicero, when he says you should relax, is talking about letting this other part of the brain take over. And the research on creativity is very clear that it's in this other state, this relaxed state, where you're much more likely to have the creative insight, you know, during the shower or while walking the dog or whatever it may be.
1: I don't know if you've come across this guy, um, Brad Stulberg, who wrote a book called The Practice of Groundedness, which I, I've only dipped into, but I, I gather is very good. But he was chatting to a friend of mine called Chris Stout on... on A podcast called living a a life in full and chris is a psychologist and a super super smart guy wonderful guy and Mm. they were discussing um the um psychoanalyst dw winnicott who you'll know infinitely more about than i do and brad was talking about this concept of good enough that he drawn from winnicott where winnicott had said you know the the best type of parent isn't a helicopter parent who's constantly kind of hovering and trying to prevent any misstep from the child, but it's not a negligent parent either. And so I, I wrote down something from this podcast conversation between Brad Salberg and Chris Stout where uh, that I wanted to run by you, where, where Brad basically takes this philosophy of parenting from Winnicott. And then he says, I started to think that this philosophy can apply far beyond parenting. Imagine if we took that to all of the big projects in our lives and even our own unfolding So instead of trying to always fix things and problem-solve and immediately come in, like the helicopter parent, what if we were good enough? What if we gave things a little more time and space to unfold? And again, this doesn't mean being negligent, far from it. It doesn't mean not caring. It means releasing from the heavy weight of perfectionism and obsession in favor of good enough. And what the research shows unequivocally is that even if you are concerned with being great, the best way to be great is to be good enough over and over and over again. And then suddenly one day you wake up and you're great.
2: You know, William, that's just another way of articulating the main point of the book Optimal, which is it's good enough to sustain excellence every day, not to kill yourself or kill the people who are working for you by pushing them and stressing them or stressing yourself or criticizing yourself. Uh, And the good enough concept is pretty powerful. One reason it matters is that children and teenagers need to learn to individuate which means take risks in their personal life as they grow try something new and if you're the helicopter parent you don't let them you want them to do the thing that you know the piano lessons the whatever lessons after school until they go to bed or they do their homework for hours but children and teens need to be able to explore too not just to do the that routine that the helicopter parent wants them to do and that's the good enough parent lets that happen. And I think a good enough leader lets that happen, too.
1: And it's interesting, because I look at someone like Tom Gaynor, who I mentioned before, the CEO of Markel, who talks about being radically moderate and just having steady incremental progress, and he's still pretty extreme. It's not like we're talking about not caring. I mean, I think, I think even when you're talking about optimal, it's not, it's not a low standard, it's just a more feasible and achievable standard. than than thinking we're going to achieve some sort of elusive, enigmatic state of flow very regularly.
2: Well, what it means is that you're effective every day. You're productive every day. And just as with an investment, you want it to be effective and productive over time in a sustainable way. You don't want to have big peaks that then have big drops. Uh, And so I think that the wisdom uh, about what makes people effective, and also applies, applies to the market. What makes a stock pick effective?
1: Yeah, it's 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 in some ways it's about sustaining excellence over very long periods of time. And I remember Rich Roll, the extreme athlete who then became a lawyer, I think, and a, and as a podcast, he said something that really struck me about how it's basically about being the person who slows down the least. That wow. you somehow have to just keep going for 100 miles, slowing down the least. And, and that is a little bit like being a CEO or a little bit like being an author, right? Because, I mean, I, I, I was very extreme in the approach to Richard Wiser, Happier, the, the book, and didn't take a vacation in five years. And, and when I was done, I was just spent. And it's actually quite hard to motivate myself to write another book because I was just so beaten up. And so, in a, in a way, I'm a good example of someone who both is getting the benefits and paying the price for being an extreme obsessive perfectionist. This is maybe why I'm belaboring this point, because it's something I really wrestle with a lot.
2: So, you know, to put the question another way, can you be outstanding and not kill yourself, not drive yourself to desperation? You know, there was an article in the excellent journal Science called The Neurobiology of Frazzle. And what it's talking about is what you sounds like you did finding this book, which is, you know, every day you get stressed out and you don't schedule in recovery. You just keep going and keep going and keep going. Some people may be able to do that for a period. I don't know that anybody can do it all their life Uh, because, as I said, the stress hormones are going to eat away at your health and, uh, you know, create kind of fuzzy decision-making. Actually, I think it's counterproductive. But getting in that state all the time and never allowing yourself to recover means you become emotionally exhausted and burn out. And how do you pursue excellence and not burn out? You know, the the interesting question, for example, uh, with these exemplars of driving themselves is, well, what do they actually do in a day or in a week? Do they have some time to recover? Do they do something that helps them not get into frazzle? Or do they just have a constitution? Maybe these are unique individuals genetically. We don't know that.
1: I somewhat wondered if Rick Reeder, the the guy I mentioned before, who manages the enormous amount of money at BlackRock, I wonder if there is something almost different in the way that he's wired like it is kind of extraordinary that he's managed to sustain it and and i i wonder also if someone um i don't know uh, like an elon musk if they are just wired differently if it is a little bit like being an extreme athlete but i i feel like for most of us um the realm of uh sustainable excellence is a that's that's a that's a that's a happier and better goal to aim for. So, so anyway, I wanted, I wanted to dig in much more deeply to the book and the tools, because I think you've studied the four domains of emotional intelligence in such detail, such depth over the last 30 years, and you've got a lot of, a lot of data and a lot of practical experience how, how it works. And so, in a way, I want the, the heart of this conversation to be helping our listeners to figure out how to build an emotional intelligence mm-hmm. of advantage so that they can function well and work and in work and in life by harnessing these ingredients of high performance. But I figure it might be helpful before we go in depth for you just to give us a, a quick overview or review of what the four domains of emotional intelligence are so that then when we go into them in some detail, people will know, okay, this, sure. is, this, this is where we are in this journey. Uh,
2: the first domain is emotional self-awareness, knowing what you're feeling, why you're feeling it, how it shapes your perception, your thinking, your impulse to act. Second domain is self-management. That means getting your disruptive, distracting states under control. That's anger and anxiety, for example. And at the same time, marshalling the positive, which is keeping your eye on the long-term goal despite daily distractions being nimble, agile, and adjusting to changing circumstances, staying positive, positive that's the mindset is very important, seeing yourself as able to improve and other people as able to improve, not just dismissing yourself or others as you are today, but realizing, you know, I could get better. The third domain is empathy, and here it's important to realize there are three different kinds of empathy, uh, each instantiated in different circuitry in the brain. Uh, The first is cognitive empathy. I know how you think. Uh, I know the terms you use. I know how you see the world. And because I know the terms you use to explain reality or a situation yourself, I can talk to you effectively because I can use those terms. I know you'll understand. The second is emotional empathy. This is uh, based on um, what in social neuroscience we call the emotional brain and the fact that brains are designed To link to the brain of the person we're with and create a silent, automatic, instantaneous, unconscious bridge, which tells you what the other person is intending and what they're feeling. So you know what the person feels because you sense it too. And then the third kind of empathy, which is little discussed, but I think should be brought to people's attention more, is what's technically called empathic concern. It's not just that I know how you think and I know how you feel. That's great for marketing, say. I also care about you. That is the mark of a great leader. Someone, who, if you feel that your boss cares about you, has your back, wants what's best for you, is going to coach you or mentor you to develop further strengths, you have intense loyalty. It really makes you feel good about the situation you're in. Uh, and um, The fourth domain of emotional intelligence is what you might call social skill. We think of it as relationship management. It means, for example, being able to inspire people, uh, being able to coach them, being able to mentor, being able to persuade or guide someone else, being able to sense when there is a disturbance in the room, there is an upset that you can, it's simmering, that you can surface and help both sides come to some agreement. And also it's being a great team player very important. Teams exhibit emotional intelligence at the group level. It looks a little different, but it means that they have all of the key attributes of emotional intelligence, and you can pick it up in how people on the team relate to each other. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
3: Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com.
1: All right, back to the show. Before we dive into these things in some detail and figure out how to improve our performance in each of these four domains, I just wanted to to step back and, and ask you about your really how the data has proven to you over the last three decades that these emotional intelligence yeah. strengths and skills actually matter greatly in terms of personal success and effectiveness. Because when you started out, my sense is that this was a hunch that you had. It was a sort of intelligent guess, but you didn't have the data. And it seems like now you have an enormous number of studies and data that actually, for a, a former science journalist um, at the New York Times and the like, and, mm-hmm. and a, a science author, give you a kind of confirmation of what your hunch was.
2: That's 100% correct. When I wrote the book in 95, Emotional Intelligence, it made intuitive sense, but we had no data. It was only in 1990 that the first journal article called Emotional Intelligence appeared. It was written by a friend of mine, Peter Salovey, who's now the president of Yale. He was a junior professor then, and he wrote it with a graduate student. Uh, And it was highly speculative too, because they had no measure yet of emotional intelligence. You know, IQ has been around for more than a century. There's tons of data showing that IQ is a terrific predictor of how well you'll do in school. Turns out to be a pretty poor predictor of how you'll do in life over the course of your career. That's where emotional intelligence kicks in. Uh, Consider this. uh, For a lot of professions, you need to get an MBA or an advanced, say engineering, Uh, you need an advanced degree. That's that's the threshold ability, threshold competence. But it means Everyone else is about as smart as you are. And uh, for example, uh, there's a study of engineers where they're asked, rate other engineers on how effective they are as engineers. You do it anonymously. And it turned out that those ratings had zero correlation with IQ Hmm. and very high correlation with emotional intelligence. How do you manage yourself? How do you handle your relationships? That's what makes you good in this. And I think that's what makes you a, a leader in an organization, at least an effective leader. I think it's what makes you an effective team member or head of a team. So, uh, em- emotional intelligence matters more over the course of your career and over the course of your life than it does during your school years when you're being graded on IQ.
1: It's also really interesting that you mention in, in this new book that despite the fact that we now realize how important emotional intelligence is, MBA programs, for example, are really doing next to nothing to develop these emotional intelligence skills. And, and you cite one study that said that I think roughly four in 10 leaders had paltry strengths in these emotional intelligence competencies.
2: You know, a, a friend of mine was a research head at an uh, executive headhunting firm, and uh, they were interested in why people who looked really strong as candidates who they recommended got fired. And they did a study around the world and they found, well, they, you know, their business expertise, all of that analytics scale very high, but they were invariably fired for a lapse in emotional intelligence. And, uh, you know, this just tells you that you need both. It's not that it's one or the other, it's both end. Uh, and I think that uh, many companies and or- too many companies and organizations don't understand this. They're, in the book, we, we look at some outstanding examples of companies where this really matters. For example, MD Anderson, which is the world's number one place for cancer treatment. The head of that organization and the training people understand the value of emotional intelligence. Uh, the, I mentioned Progressive, where the head of the customer relations unit uh, espoused the importance of emotional intelligence. It's very important, I think, that someone from the business side champions this, and that HR or the training and development people offer an opportunity to strengthen it. Uh, that's a winning combination, I think.
1: Yeah, Satya Nadella, you mentioned as well that uh, Microsoft came in with all guns blazing, talking on his first day, I think,
2: about the importance of emotional intelligence. Yeah, he, he called it empathy. Ah. And that raises another point, which is that uh the culture of organizations and businesses varies tremendously and the the emotional intelligence is pretty much embedded in the dna of many organizations but by different names you know you may call empathy uh leadership presence not empathy but it's basically the same skill
1: all right well we'll go through these four domains in some detail talking about how to Upgrade various tools that we can use to upgrade our own performance, so we we become optimal. We may not be in flow, but we're going to be optimal by the end of this episode. So the first the first domain is self awareness, and so if you could explain even before we start, like why emotional self awareness is at the very core of emotional intelligence, why is it the foundational skill that you need to activate all of the others?
2: Because all the others depend on that, if you don't have self-awareness, you can't manage your emotions well. they just come to you, you don't see them coming, you don't know what you don't even realize you're in the grip of uh you know anger or whatever it is uh, empathy same thing if you are tuned out of a range of your own emotion, you're not going to pick it up in other people uh, and the relationship skills depend on all three. they build on the other three with emotional intelligence is the foundation we have research for example that shows of uh, 12 competencies that are based on emotional intelligence which you see in outstanding performers outstanding leaders uh, if you are poor in self awareness you'll be poor in say 10 of those 12 you might be good in one or two but if you're strong in self awareness you're likely to be good in many many others so, so there so are if-
1: various tools that you write about in order to build greater self-awareness. You, you mentioned things like an inner check-in, a body scan, monitoring self-talk, naming your emotions. Can you discuss those in a little more detail, giving us a sense of what you would do if, like me and many of our listeners, you're thinking, well, I'm reasonably self-aware, but you know, how, how do I build this? How do I use these, well, these techniques that you're describing?
2: So self-awareness requires a special kind of attention. It's not that we notice what we're thinking and feeling, but we have a a platform from which we can kind of be meta and see it come and go. And one of the effective tools was actually developed at Yale. They have a center for emotional intelligence uh, where you practice naming what you're feeling. It turns out most people are pretty poor at that. We have kind of gross names. I guess I'm getting angry now, but we don't have a kind of refined vocabulary. But it turns out, because of the way the brain functions, that if you can name what you're feeling, then the cortex, a different part of the brain, activates, and the part that's getting you so upset right now is less active. So that's one way. Another and and they, they
1: developed a mood meter, right? I mean, there was uh, yeah. this guy Mark Brackett from Yale Center for uh, Emotional Intelligence, of some kind. And I remember my son Henry has a T-shirt that has like pictures of something like fifty different moods. You know, it's like yeah. I am angry, I am sad.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you can get better and better. at And I think the fundamental of any of these development methods is practice. It's like developing any skill. And by the way, this is very important. The way you strength and emotional intelligence is through skill building. It's like building. It's like practicing your golf stroke. It is not like cognitive learning in academia. In cognitive learning, you have a pre-existing network, cognitive network of understanding, and you plug in the new thing, you know, uh, how to subtract if you're a seven-year-old, uh, or how to add if you're a five-year-old. And uh, that's a different method of learning. But to get better at it, Uh, any aspect of emotional intelligence, I think you have to be motivated. It has to matter to you. One of the ways this is done sometimes is to ask someone, uh, where do you want to be in five years? What would help you get there? In other words, you want the motivation to come from within. You don't want someone to feel like, oh, man, my boss said I have to go to this training, Uh, you know, and you're already not going to learn anything uh, if you have. So, First of all, you want to want it. Second, it helps to understand what would help you get where you want to go. Third, can you engineer that into a particular behavioral sequence? I'll give you a common example. Many, many people, particularly leaders, are poor listeners. By poor listener, I mean you interrupt people. You talk over them. They come in, they want to talk to you about X, you want to talk to them about Y. And they talk for you know eighteen seconds. This is what they found with physicians and patients, by the way. And then you take over the conversation. That's terrible habit if you want to be a good listener, if you want to really be able to empathize and understand the other person. So, you might have a behavioral sequence to practice. Like when when someone comes to talk to me, and it could be your teenager, by the way, the brain doesn't really distinguish between work and life. Uh, I'm going to listen, and then I'm going to say what I think they meant and then say what I think. That is a new behavior. And it's like uh, learning a golf stroke. It's At first, it's awkward. It doesn't feel comfortable. The more you practice, the more comfortable it gets until there is a neural landmark where the new behavior is practiced so much, it becomes automatic. That means a different part of the brain is taking it over, the basal ganglia, where habit is. And that's going to stick with you. Uh, that's not going to go away. Um, I, I sometimes, you know, I'm often asked to give keynotes at companies and so on. And one of the things I have to say is, you know, you may learn something from this. You may get a little motivated. It won't last. This is not development. Hmm. This is why this matters. So you need to then, another step is practice at every naturally occurring opportunity, like with your teenager or with someone in your office uh and get support you know if you can get a coach great uh, someone who's going to help you because you're sure to have bad days you know the day you blew it i went back to my old way i was pressured whatever then you use that as a learning opportunity what can you do next time this happens to be sure that you do it right uh, and then but if you practice you're going to hit that neural landmark where it becomes automatic
1: I thought it was very interesting on this subject of becoming a better, more active listener that that you said in in the book, you described this one technique where you said in difficult situations, for example, where you're trying to understand the other person's perspective, you should really hear the person out, then repeat back to them in your own words what you heard, and then ask, did I get that right, or did I misunderstand, and then let them speak freely.
2: Yeah, because the other person is then feeling heard feeling felt. That's very important to that person. It means you, they know you're paying attention, you respect them. You, uh, even if you may not agree with them, you want to know what their position is, uh, and that validates the other person. And in, uh, if you're the leader, that's very important. One of the things, uh, by the way, about groups uh, that we find in our research is that uh, at Google, they looked at their top teams, they called it psychological safety. Uh, in the work of my colleague, Vanessa Druskat, who studies high-performing groups, uh, she calls it belonging. If you feel you belong. So for example, if you have a diversity and inclusion goal in your organization, as many do these days, it's not enough just to have X number of Y people, because that's what the general demographic is in the population. That doesn't mean that those people feel they belong. It's much more important to be welcoming, to listen, to be respectful, and give that person a sense that, yes, I belong here. That really accomplishes the goal.
1: So to, in, 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 to finish off this idea of self-awareness as this foundational skill, there are other, there are other tools you mentioned, for example, doing some kind of inner check-in or scanning your body, which I and, there, obviously, the famous neuroscientist Antonio Damasio talked about having a sense of your somatic markets. The, can, can you talk a little bit about that? Because this also very much relates to investing, where the best investors have this really powerful sense of what their body is telling them about the state that they're in and whether they're in a state where they're maybe too emotional, maybe they're, they're too fearful, or maybe they're overexcited. And, uh, or, or they're hungry, or they're jealous, or something like that. And, and so they, they have these kind of – so they have to tune into their bodies and their emotions so that they know when they're in a suboptimal state to make a rational decision.
2: The somatic markers is basically just sensing how your body is feeling. And here it's helpful to know what your triggers are, when you're more likely to get into a state, Uh, that isn't optimal for making a good decision, because an investor has to be clear-headed. And so you want to sense something building before it takes you over. It might be, oh, I've got that feeling in my stomach again. I'm getting anxious, or I've got the sense in my knees, and I'm getting angry. Uh, I think that's a skill. That is a skill of self-awareness for sure. And uh, that helps you know when you're about to get into a state where your emotions are taking you over, and you should never make a decision, let alone an investment decision, from those states, because it's not your clear-headed decision. Another way to, another dimension of self-awareness has to do with how your sense of yourself matches with how people see you. And that means getting input from other people, usually anonymously. You don't, very few people will be candid with you, you know, and say you're this kind of person. Or I think you're too uptight or you get angry too much. People don't want to tell you that. They want to preserve the relationship, particularly if they work for you. So anyway, uh, there are many measures. They're called 360 degree measures. I have one, the Emotional and Social Competence Inventory. It's managed by Corn Ferry. uh, And it evaluates people anonymously. You get to pick, say, the half dozen or 10 people whose opinions you respect, who know you well. We're going to rate you anonymously, so they can be totally honest. You won't know what they said about you, but you get an aggregate, and it gives you a profile of what your strengths and limits are, and you can match that with how you rate, how you rate yourself, and it turns out the better that match, the more effective a leader will be.
1: So Okay, so self, self-awareness also, I guess there's also this aspect of monitoring your self-talk so you can see when you're beating yourself up. I found this yesterday. I, 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 I made a hash of my preparation yesterday and the day before for this interview. And I was, you know, and, and I, I just did it in a really inefficient way that meant I had to go and redo something for several hours. And I, and I found myself yesterday, literally like swearing at myself and being like, you idiot, you, you know, but with swear words added. Okay. And and it's really, I, I think I've become more aware over the years of when my sort of violent self-talk towards myself is a cue to be aware of like something's going on here, something is amiss. Can you talk about that? Because it's, it's very uncomfortable and it's slightly embarrassing, but I think it's such an
2: important sure.
1: insight so into our state.
2: Another aspect of self-awareness is monitoring what you're telling yourself. Uh, you know, in cognitive therapy, they say uh, something wonderful. You don't have to believe your thoughts. In other words, some of those thoughts, like, uh, you really blew it, you're an idiot, just are not helpful. Some of those thoughts, like, um, I didn't do that well, let me try again, is helpful. And you want to make the distinction between whether your thoughts are helping you or hurting you. And the, the, the uh, self-criticism is generally hurting you. But the uh, ability to see where you could improve is helping you.
1: I feel like it was some ancient technique that we figured out where probably we had disappointed our school teachers and our parents and and then we beat the hell out of ourselves and we improved and then everyone told us we were great after all and so we somehow when we were young we internalized this idea of if i just beat myself up enough i'm going to be really good and then and then you get to a point later in life where you're like really do i actually have to live that way
2: um i hope you get to that point anyway
1: at least now I notice that I'm doing it. And it's a way, I, I mean, I remember this Sylvia Borstein, who I'm sure you're, you're friendly with, the great old um, Buddhist, Buddhist teacher, who I remember listening to her giving a talk where she said, I'm sorry, sweetheart, you're suffering right now. And she would say this to herself. And that's a little bit how I feel in that. It's a, it's a way of me pausing and saying, oh, God, I'm sorry, oh. you're, you're suffering right now.
2: That's, that's really wonderful as an antidote uh, because what it says is that you're a self aware, you're recognizing when you're beating yourself up and B, you're applying an antidote, which is being kind to yourself instead of beating yourself up. Uh, and that's a wonderful skill, internal skill to practice. And it's a skill of self awareness because you can only do it if you recognize the moments when your self talk is being destructive.
1: And if I can, if I can. Put in a mention of a book that i actually think is terrific again probably by someone you know kristen neff co-wrote this book the self-compassion workbook that i i think it again she's a she's an academic at the university of Texas austin in texas or yeah. texas in austin and um and she's a, a buddhist student and a psychologist and the like and i just think she's really smart about using these gentle methods with yourself that I think make you more sustainable than using the self-lacerating approach that uh, some of us learned growing up?
2: Uh, I I was once in a dialogue with the Dalai Lama when he was shocked to hear that people in the West were uh, contemptuous of themselves,
3: Mm.
2: pitied themselves. He, He didn't, in his culture, that wasn't really known. And he was shocked. And he said, you know, you need a new word in English. This was in the 80s. Yeah, the word is self-compassion, and that's exactly what Neff has then taken up. I don't know that she knew about that. I I'd recommend a book by my wife, actually Tara Bennett Coleman, Emotional Alchemy, which talks about the ten most common uh, self-defeating emotional patterns and what to do about them. How to bring this kind of self-awareness to seeing when they're taking us over and then changing. Uh, what we do and how we think about ourselves i think that's very powerful
1: yeah i'll second like, that she's well, terrific i mean i i have the book and and have absolutely. met her many times thankfully thanks to you and she, she is terrific and also it's worth saying that tara has played a a very important role in helping to shape sokni Rinpoche's teachings about how to deal with these difficult emotions and so the last time that i had you on the podcast was when when we chatted with you yeah. and sokni Rinpoche, This great tibetan buddhist master meditation master and teacher about this aspect of how to deal with what he calls your your beautiful monsters and what tara tara talks about a lot in 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 her book so um,
2: and and, uh, um, uh, these are all methods william for enhancing self-awareness
1: yeah and and so let's get to domain two which in a way i'd like to dwell on in in more depth than some of the others because i think it's so it's so practical and so important to us, which is these techniques for self management. And, and so can you start by giving us a sense of, of why this kind of emotional self mastery is so critical? If you're particularly, if you're going into a field where cognitive skill counts very heavily, like investing or writing or teaching, or like why is emotional self mastery and balance so critical?
2: So let's reverse engineer that a moment and look at uh, the times and the state you get into when you're least effective, uh, when you make bad decisions. It's times when your emotions are driving how you think. Emotions are very critical uh, in terms of self-mastery for, for several reasons. One is that emotions direct your attention. The thing you're upset about, the thing you're angry about, the thing you're anxious about is where the brain shifts your attention. If you're going to make a good decision, you want to be clear of that. You don't want to be emotionally driven. You want to be balanced. Uh, It's not that you don't want your emotions at all. Of course you do, but you don't want them to take you over. You don't want them to be driving Uh, How you think about anything, and so uh, emotional self management, which is key in this second domain of emotional intelligence, means that on the one hand you can manage upsetting emotions well. The definition in the lab of resilience is the time it takes you to recover from peak upset to back to calm and clear, Uh, and the faster you do that, the more resilient you are. You can't determine what you're going to feel or when you're going to feel it or how strongly you'll feel it. Emotions come unbidden from a deep part of the brain, but you can decide what you do once you feel it. That's where self-management comes in. And there are uh, many, many methods here, but it's not just handling disruptive emotions, distracting emotions. It's also marshalling the positive emotions. Like remembering what matters to you, what's your long-term goal here, uh, you know, despite the distractions of the day, where are you heading? Also, um, are, are you handling the uh, times that you get thrown off because of changing circumstances? And by the way, circumstances are always changing. Tech, you know, uh, social trends, everything is changing all the time. And you need to sense what's going on, but not be thrown by it. So that has to do with being agile, being adaptable, uh, staying clear despite the changes, and then staying positive, basically, because a positive frame of mind is your best frame of mind for making good decisions. I don't mean being overly optimistic, but I mean not being downbeat, not being pessimistic, uh, seeing that uh, things always change. And tomorrow's a new day. Let's take a quick break
0: and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market.
3: as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners.
1: Back to the show, and you mentioned some of the famous research of Martin Seligman, right? Who who was famous for talking about learned helplessness, right? Where you know you would get tortured or whatever, and at a certain point you'd become you know like this rubbery mouse, and there was nothing you could do. And I had I don't think uh, you know that uh, that phrase obviously appeals to me. It's a very interesting concept. I'd never noticed the phrase that you mentioned in the book, which is learned optimism which is sort of the opposite that Seligman talks about. And, and you talked about using phrases like I can learn and grow better, or I can't do that yet. Or uh, can, can you talk a little bit about how to, because obviously this is very related also to Carol Dweck's writings about the growth mindset. These are all just sort of old, old, uh, old wines in new bottles, but it's really important, this idea of how to develop a positive outlook so that you can be more resilient.
2: So Seligman, in his research, found that there were certain categories of thoughts that made people depressed. Uh, Like, I can't do this. I'm worthless. uh, Life is pointless. These are actually kinds of things. I I did some research years ago on uh, with um, notes left by people who committed suicide. And they were full of this kind of thinking, which is depressionogenic. And what Seligman realized was that Uh, he could help people counter those thoughts. Uh, This is, uh, by the way, fits with Dweck's research on growth mindset. Uh, The idea that I'm no good, which is going to make you depressed, is a fixed mindset. But he, he saw that you could have what Dweck would call a growth mindset, which is to see yourself as able to change, as able to improve, as able to be better. And in fact, you might if you took stock, you might realize that, oh, yeah, actually, I'm not so bad. People have told me this and that and that, and, which was good, uh, which is a thought you suppressed when you were in that pessimistic, depressed state. And so that's, these are the kinds of countering. This is, by the way, a, a basic of cognitive therapy, too. Uh, and it was, uh, cognitive therapy was developed at Penn also by a Seligman colleague, uh, Aaron Beck. And the idea is simple. It's that, uh, remember, you don't have to believe your thoughts, particularly the depressionogenic thoughts, the ones that are making you feel bad about yourself. And you can counter them by telling yourself, well, I'm not so bad when you're thinking you're bad. You may need, I know a cognitive therapist who has clients write down the counterthought because the down thoughts are so prominent and uh, they'll have a little car that'll tell them, "Oh, actually, I'm pretty good. Oh, I can grow and change. I could." In other words, things you can remind yourself of in that moment that counter the the depressing thought.
1: I, I feel like this is particularly important at the moment in our era because there's almost a an epidemic of gloom that you particularly see with the younger generation. I, I you know, my daughter, who you've met, Madeline, is 22, and my son Henry is 25, and I see their age group not them in particular, but uh, people they know, um, who read the news and read about global warming and the like, and, and wars and the like, and, and they've almost like con- convinced themselves that everything is going to hell. And it's all kind of pointless. And I was chatting actually to some- someone, in the, in the very nice cafe where you and I sometimes meet the, the, the red barn bakery, which I'm happy to advertise here, uh, in Irvington. I was talking to someone there, and she said, one of the reasons why for her, that generation, for her generation, it's so hard for them to commit to a relationship, is they're almost like, well, what's the point? Do you see that a lot, like that sense that, that there's so much gloom that it kind of has to be counteracted?
2: You know, I think that gloom is understandable. I think that the news, uh, the climate news, is full of, of bad reports. So if you're 20, when you're thinking of having kids by the time you're 30, uh, that means by the time all these dire things are predicted, your kids are going to be in a very bad situation. Uh, which, by the way, gets me to uh, an idea I wanted to run by you, but here's an opportunity. Uh, I think there's a smart business strategy here. I'll tell you what it is. Uh, younger people, which is a demographic companies want to capture as loyal customers over the course of their life. Younger people, uh, more than older people today, are going to value concrete moves that a product or company makes toward lessening their their footprint, the carbon and so on. Uh, And if there were an impartial evaluator, uh, so I could compare this cup versus that cup or this, these snacks versus those snacks for their climate or ecological imprint. And by the way, that footprint is not just carbon. It's eight systems that support life on the planet, uh, all of which are in dire straits and getting worse. If you could see that this product uh, is doing it better than the other product, and if you knew that at point of purchase, just the way you know cost, I think it would create a market share uh, improvement for those products that are doing something about it, and you know, you know companies have to chase market share. So that might be a way to use the existing system of incentives, and to change a system – you have to understand the incentives uh, – to have companies rethink how they make their things, what services they offer, what their footprint is. In a better direction. Uh, And I think the younger demographic would drive that. I don't think that the data today shows it, but I bet it's going to happen tomorrow.
1: Yeah, I I tend to agree. I I see with people in their twenties and thirties, this tremendous drive to live a more purpose-driven life. And I, I think for a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a big backlash against the environmental, social, and governance movement that I I think is a little bit crazy, the backlash. I mean, maybe the pendulum swung too far in one direction, or maybe Wall Street was too cynical in exploiting stuff where they promised and hyped things but didn't actually live up to them. But I think this is here to stay because when I when I see this younger generation, I think if you if you want to hire them and you want to retain them, they're less likely to go work for a company that doesn't care about these things. They're more likely to stay loyal to a company that is slightly more idealistic,
2: or stay with the company that doesn't do it well now and help them get to doing it better. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think purpose, a sense of purpose or a mission, uh, is more and more important. And with the younger generation, that mission tends to be more and more around the environment.
1: Yeah, yeah. To get back to this issue of managing our emotions, which I think is so hugely important. Um, it, well, one, I mean, you, you do talk about the importance of having, having a sense of purpose as one way to deal with stress and the like, and to become more resilient. But I wanted to talk a little bit about, about stress in general, which yeah. clearly there's an epidemic of. And you, you quote a survey in the book showing that I think 38% of people in the workplace experienced high levels of burnout in 2022. Another study found that 16% have had to quit a job due to stress. And so clearly stress in many ways is a major enemy of getting into an optimal state, which and so it's, it's going to mess up our judgment, it's, whether we're investors or business people or in our relationships with our family and friends, going to mess up our health, It's going to lead to burnout, unhappiness, all of these habits that you mentioned, like overeating and over drinking and, and sleeplessness or whatever, and, and absenteeism and low productivity and the like. So it's, it's clearly a scourge. So let's talk about how to deal with it. What your work in this arena of emotional intelligence tells us about how we can actually lessen stress and regain some sense of emotional balance. What can we do?
2: Well, uh, we're not helpless at all. But if we're uh, driven to emotional exhaustion or driving ourselves in that direction, we need to notice that that's happening. That's where self awareness comes in. And the body uh, is actually wired for stress. Uh, it, it, it's the emergency response. Everybody knows this. You know, your um, the stress hormones make your uh, limbs activate. They get more blood. Your organs, your immune system uh, gets less blood during the emergency. Now, the problem is, if that emergency is chronic, this is the nature of stress today, then you're lowering your immune resistance you're you're ruining your health basically uh and even though you may be able to arouse yourself to meet the stress of the moment the body's not designed for that the body's designed to have uh, a, a big emergency reaction stress arousal we call it and then recover and if you slight the recovery you're driving yourself to exhaustion and uh, one of the main ways to fight stress is, A, you know, the old, uh, what can I change in the situation? Maybe you can change it, maybe not. Maybe you can lessen it. Maybe if you're a leader, you can redistribute the load. I don't know. But the other is manage yourself, manage your internal reaction to the reality you face day in and day out. And that means Do what it takes to recover. And it might be going for a walk. It might be meditating or yoga or uh, spending time with someone you love or playing with your kids or your pet. It doesn't matter what works for you. Schedule it. Make it part of your day. Make it part of your routine. Because it always looks like it's a waste of time. It's not. It's crucial because it lets you go back into the fray. Restore it and you can be more optimal uh, than if you had never done it that's for sure you can make better decisions
1: you've gone deep on a lot of these things in your own life i know that you've been meditating since you were a junior at berkeley i think more than 50 years ago and so you've thought a lot about meditation And breathing and the like, and you you mention a bit in the in the book a a deep breathing technique that can actually shift your physiology a a four 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 type of breathing. Can you talk about that? Because it's a very it's a very practical kind of intervention when you're when you're in a state.
2: uh, uh, Two things. One is uh, meditation is really attention training. I'll get back to that. Uh, That's a Kind of slower way of preparing yourself to handle stress. It's like going to the gym every day and working out. You become more fit. Uh, and if you uh, practice an attention training method, you get more focused. So we'll get back to that. The four-four-four method, is sometimes called box breathing, is used by rangers or uh, you know military who are about to go into a stressful situation. They teach it. Uh, but the research shows it shifts physiology from what's called the parasympathetic nervous system arousal, I'm sorry, a sympathetic nervous system arousal, which is when you're stressed out and upset, to a parasympathetic, which is the recovery mode. Uh, and it goes like this. It's so simple. You breathe in. I teach a count of four, but I, I say breathe in as long as it's comfortable. Hold your breath for as long as it's comfortable and then exhale slowly for as long as you can. And if you do that six to nine times, it actually shifts your physiology from that stressed mode uh, to recovery and relax. So that's one thing you can do if you know you're about to go into a stressful situation. On the other hand, I would say buff up your attention, your focus, because the more focused you are, it turns out the same part of the brain that helps you focus Makes you more calm, so it's a twofer. And uh, attention training can be as simple as, um, you know, saying, uh, "I'm going to pay attention to my breath, breathing in, breathing out, uh, and full attention to every breath." And whenever my mind wanders, I guarantee it will. And I notice it wandered. I'm going to bring it back to the breath. That's like a, the the brain equivalent of a rep in the gym. Every time you bring your focus back to that place you want it to be, your breath or task at hand, you're strengthening the circuitry for focus. And that's another way to manage stress. So you're less reactive. You're, you know, there are three uh, dimensions of a stress reaction. One is how often you get stressed, upset, and this makes people less often likely to get uh, upset. The second is how deeply it happens, how upset you get, and this method is uh, people become more calm and less likely to have an extreme upset. And the third, I mentioned, that's the quickness of your recovery, your resilience, and this helps people be quicker in recovering from the upset.
1: I thought it was really interesting as well, You, you cite a classic study that I think is from something like 2010 that's called A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. And that connection, that sense that we're sort of adrift so much of the day and that it's not, yeah, it's not just that it's unproductive. It's that it's actually a pretty miserable place to be in.
2: This is a really interesting study. It was done at Harvard. They gave people an app for their phone, which rang them at random times a day and says, what are you doing and what are you thinking about? Uh, Just those two questions. And how do you feel? And what they found was that people's were people were distracted from what was going on about 50% of the time. By the way, it was 90% three times during a commute, sitting in front of a video screen, and at work. Sorry to say it's true. People are thinking about something else. Uh and if you're thinking about something else, you're not fully focused on what you're doing right now. And they also found that the more distracted you were, the less happy you are uh, when we're lost in our thoughts we tend to think, you know the most distracting thoughts are the most emotionally powerful ones that thing he said to me why did he say that it's so upsetting why didn't she answer that email you know it doesn't matter what it is that's where your mind is going to go we're wired that way in evolution to, to reflect on what didn't go right but on the other hand that's not a helpful habit these days So that's part of self-awareness, realizing where our mind is going.
1: This Harvard study about the perils of a wandering mind is particularly timely in a sense because we're all wrestling with technology and the massive influx of um, (laughs) distracting uh, seductions. And I mean, I, I have a desktop computer, I have a laptop computer, I have an iPhone, I have an iPad, and on them... I have instant access to my email, my text messages, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, I mean, everything, podcasts, Spotify, FaceTime, it's kind of a marvel that I actually ever do anything. And so how, how, given what you know about attention and focus, because you've written a, a book that I've read before about focus as well, which is on my Kindle as well, there's another device, um, how can I break this habit of falling down these rabbit holes and dividing my attention in just so many unhelpful ways?
2: Well, you know, when they did that study in 2010, uh, not everyone carried a phone with them every moment of the day. Now many, many, or most people do. And phones are, uh, can be very helpful. I love to Google things I don't know uh, you know, at the moment. And they're our worst enemy. Because all of our seductions are right there in our hand. The things that turn you on, the things that anger you, the things that make you uptight and anxious, you can get in, in a moment. And so uh, phones feed distractedness. Remember, it's the emotionally laden thoughts that are the most distracting. And if you want to have a full focus on what matters right now, you want to put aside those distractions. So actually, I think this is one reason that it's important to teach kids today how to focus, how to handle emotions, how to, uh, you know, basically emotional intelligence. And there are courses that called Social Emotional Learning, SEL. It's in many, many schools. I went to a classroom in uh, Spanish Harlem, very impoverished part of Manhattan, uh, and the I was told half the students in that class had ADHD, you know, attention deficit disorder. And I expected the class to be chaotic, and it wasn't. And I asked the teacher why, and she said, well, every day we do this. And they did what the kids call belly buddies. Uh, one by one, the kids got their favorite stuffed animal from their cubby, found a place to lie down, put that animal on their belly, and watched it rise on the in-breath, fall on the outbreath." rise on the in-breath, fall on the out-breath. When their mind wandered off, they noticed it the wandered. they brought it back to the next breath. Basically, this is attention training for kids. And I think it, we need it today more than ever, because the distractions are ever-present and more powerful than they've ever been in human history. Uh, and uh, I think we need to arm kids with better focus today, and much more so than when you and I were kids.
1: You mentioned that in many ways, one definition of maturity is being able to widen the gap between the impulse to do something and the act itself. And this is something I think Viktor Frankl talked about, right? that, that, that in that gap, in that space, is the choice as to whether we're, we're, we're going to do the thing that we kind of know is harmful to us yeah. uh, probably cool. in the long run. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering in practical terms, given how much you've learned over the years from the science, but also how much you've learned from your meditation practice and studying Buddhism and the like, which you, you've, you've drawn a great deal in your personal life, how, how you deal with this. Because I, I find, like many of our listeners, I have a pretty stressful life, right? I'm juggling too many things. There are lots of things coming at me. Um, I'm balancing multiple projects and always have a sense that I'm sort of dropping half the balls that I'm juggling and I'm probably not even aware of what what they are. And I I can see that there are times when that stress just is quietly it's it's giving me a very I'm surprised at how quickly I lose my temper and become irritable. And I think because I'm a sort of polite repressed Englishman, the the anger seethes deep below the surface, the frustration and then I find there are certain situations where, like, I'll be walking with my wife or something like that. And we start to talk about wait, so who's going to be here when Verizon comes and is putting in the new internet? And I'm like, how can I change all? How can I handle all this when I'm, I'm preparing for my interview with Dan and I'm doing this and I'm doing that, you know? And, and yeah. I, I, suddenly I'm just sort of overwhelmed by these emotions. And it's like the storm has come. And before I know it, I'm behaving in a way that I don't like. And then I feel guilty because my wife is so sweet and so patient and tolerant after 30 years with me, how in practical terms do you deal with these difficult emotions like anger, or irritability, or sadness, or whatever it is that's your particular poison that's going to flare up in that moment so that you're, you're widening that gap and not having to act on it?
2: So, um, Frankel, uh, I think, was the first, to, as I know, to articulate the idea now commonly accepted. That the longer the gap between impulse and reaction, uh, the more mature a person is, you could say. And the ability to manage impulses is technically called cognitive control. Uh, When you have kids, you can see uh, this part of the brain coming online, typically between uh, ages five and seven. If you think about it, it's coming in late with me, Dan. (laughs) <laughs> I'll get there. Yes, If you think about a, a toddler, you know, they're all impulse. They're all whatever whim, and uh, they act on it. If you think about an eight-year-old, they're much better at managing emotion. Yeah. Now, with a kid, you can help them uh, increase cognitive control through uh, simple things like saying, um, you know, you can watch this TV after you do your homework delaying gratification is in effect a lesson in cognitive control. Uh, when, when we're adults, it's actually never too late. Uh, I find that I've, uh, I haven't by any means mastered, I never, it's not that I never become angry or never become anxious. It's just that I notice it's been happening less and less. And I think that's probably a result of, uh, you know, practicing meditation every morning which is what I like to do. Uh, And the data suggests, yes, that's true, that people who have a habit like that uh, tend to be better at managing their emotions. But, you know, there are a lot of individual differences, and I can't guarantee that, as I said, emotions come unbidden. We can't determine what we're going to feel, when we're going to feel it, or how strongly. The question is, what do we do once we feel that way?
1: So... So you also mentioned at some point in the book writing a trigger log, which I'd never really encountered as an idea, which I thought was very interesting of actually okay. keeping a log where you're reflecting on what had triggered you and how you reacted and what would have been a more effective response. I thought that was a really interesting idea.
2: Um, that's, that's something that they do. There's a uh, Daniel Goleman emotional intelligence program. It's online. You can access it. Uh, it helps you develop these, these skills that really, uh, and one of the things they do is start by getting a trigger, making a trigger log journaling. What is it that sets me off habitually? Why, what is it that keeps happening over and over again that makes me so upset? This is really useful information, because then you can, if you see it's going to come, you can prepare for it better, uh, if you see it just happen, you can think about, well, how can I manage it better the next time? Uh, when you realize you're in the throes of that, and you know, you're upset because of that trigger, you can tell yourself, for example, remember that set of countering thoughts, because it's the thoughts that it, the trigger uh, starts in your brain that come with the, the tr- that then uh, create the feelings that are going to make you do something that you regret later. That's the hallmark of an emotional hijack. You have a very sudden reaction, emotional reaction, it's very strong. And when the dust settles, you say, Oh my God, why did I say that? Why did I do that? And you have a lot of regret. So those are the things that you want to track, because it turns out that we each have our favored set of triggers. We probably learned them early in life. We don't think about them. They just happen to us. But being able to see them Gives you leverage over them that you've never had before.
1: And you mentioned that the definition of resilience is how quickly re- we recover from upset. So, exactly. so, in terms of like actually recovering from that hijacked state when you've been overwhelmed by emotion and you're just sort of, you know, it's like the, the dust is oh. kind of settling, what, what, what do you do actually to recover afterwards other than apologize to your wife? <laughs>
2: So, before you have to apologize to your wife, you might uh, do what they say uh, is good in cognitive therapy, which is to remember the counter thoughts. So, you know, he's not treating me fairly. That's a common trigger in the workplace. I'm not being given credit for my ideas. Uh, Well, maybe uh, you remind yourself that, well, I'm not the only one that feels that way. It's kind of systemic here or whatever the counter-thought might be, but it's going to be a voice in your head that calms the voice that's upsetting you. And it's important to know what your range of triggers is because that allows you then to come up with the internal strategies that are gonna help you when you see it's happened again.
1: I think also there's a a lovely lesson that I learned from a friend of yours, Sharon Solzberg, the great mindfulness meditation teacher and and actually i i saw her a few months ago with you and sort of stopped her and and said to her thank you because this has helped me so much she would say let go with self-compassion and begin again and i find that so helpful in my own life and i talk to my kids about this like when you screw up to let go with self-compassion and begin again because There's this, you were talking before about how, you know, every day you should have an excellent day and stuff. And it's like, well, I'm constantly falling off track. And I'm like, and then I kind of um, mad at myself. And to give myself that clean slate of letting go with self-compassion and begin again, it's like, okay, yeah, I screwed up again. I'm human. And now we start again.
2: Well, that's beautiful because you're not blaming yourself if you use that strategy. You're saying, yeah, I screwed up. People do screw up but I don't always screw up. You know. I'm actually pretty competent here. That's the self-compassion voice. Uh, and now I'm going to try again. I'm going to keep going. I'm not going to end it because I screwed up.
1: So the third, the third domain of emotional intelligence is empathy, which we've talked about a little bit already as a critical component of optimal performance. And I... I was very struck by a story that you told in the book about someone called Dr. Helen Reese, I think, who's a, a, um, at Harvard Medical School, and you talked about how she would get medical residents to become more empathetic. Can you talk about that? Because it's such a beautiful example of in a sense, practical ways to I can remind you, remind you of the quote, because i probably read the book more recently know, than you.
2: I what she does. Well, <laughs>
1: I'll, I'll read you the line that she said, and maybe then you can bro- break this down for us. She said residents are urged to make eye contact with their patients, recognize the patient's feelings by reading their facial expression and be more likely to mirror that expression on their own face and listen attentively and without judgment even better, and this is something you write, you say, even better, name what the patient feels and respond in a way that shows understanding in a soothing tone. That's good advice for any parent or leader.
2: I rest my case. So what you're doing, by the way, this is really interesting. Paul Ekman, who's a world expert on facial uh, expression of emotions, has come up with a learning exercise. It's online. Anyone can do it. Where in about 45 minutes, you retrain your brain to be better at recognizing feelings as expressed on the face. And uh, Dr. Reese, Helen, uh, uses uh, this, I don't know if she uses Ekman's, but what she's doing is telling medical residents something that's easy to forget if you're rushed. And today in medicine, doctors are more rushed than ever, you know, they're timed, it's pretty hectic. Uh, and that is to give your patient the sense that he or she is being listened to, being heard. This is that third element of empathy, caring. It's not just that I know what you're feeling and tell you, but you're gonna feel that I care about you because I pay full attention to what you feel and I'm saying what I think that is. It turns out, in a study that was in JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, Doctors who don't do this are more likely to be sued for medical errors than doctors who do, given the same error. Hmm. This is rather amazing. But it means that the patient feels the doctor cared. They're doing their best. And I'm not going to be angry and go to court with them. Uh, But I also think, uh, and there's other data that suggests this, it means that the patient is more likely to do uh, what's called compliance, to do what the doctor says you need to do between our sessions To take care of yourself. Take your medicine, don't eat food, whatever it may be. Uh, One of the big problems in medicine is that patients don't comply. They they don't take their medicine. They don't do what the doctor tells them to do. Uh, And, you know, medicine is not medicine uh, giving medicines, but it's also getting patients to change lifestyle, to remember to take medicine, for example. So When Helen Reese is saying to um, medical residents, pay full attention, she's also overcoming a habit, which is true of leaders generally, or I should say the most powerful person in any dyad, parents, which is you start listening to the person, the other person, and then you interrupt and you take over the conversation. You direct it where you want to go, not where the uh, person's concern would let you go. Uh, And this is uh, very poor medicine. I saw a study, they asked people in a doctor's waiting room, how many topics do you want to ask your doctor about? Average four. Then after the session with the doctor, how many did you ask? Average one and a half. Hmm. Why? Because doctors and leaders generally have poor listening. So uh, good listening, paying full attention is at the heart of empathy.
1: Yeah, and really hard increasingly with our phones there. There's something kind of distracting us. So often you're, you're, you're in a conversation with them, their phone is on the table. Or and I, I don't know if, if you found this yourself, but I, I find increasingly when I meet someone who has a problem and they've gone through something difficult and you're talking about it, In the past i would feel like well there's nothing i can do about that they just went through this really difficult thing and then gradually over the years now now i'm in my 50s where I got slightly wiser i just realized just stopping and acknowledging it and being like i'm so sorry you went through that That that's such a that's a really difficult thing it sounds like such an odd thing but i think there's something about our deep need just to have our our pain and our challenges just noticed for someone just to sit and listen and say oh yeah sorry, that was your experience. I'm so sorry, that was your experience.
2: Yeah, I think that that in itself is rather healing for people. The sense that you're listened to, cared about, understood. Very powerful in any situation.
1: Yeah, it's a weird thing because you feel almost impotent in helping people in most of these things. And actually, I think sometimes, yeah, we just, we just want it to be recognized that it was difficult, that we were suffering.
2: You know, um, when people are going through grief because someone they love, died. Uh, It's not that you can change the fact that the person died, but you can listen to them and understand that they're grieving. That itself is helpful to the person. It's not that you've changed the situation, but you were empathic.
1: Before we move on to the, the fourth topic, you mentioned an important technique for boosting empathy, and you describe it as an expanding the circle of caring exercise. And it's a, it's a mental exercise that actually Sharon Salzberg is kind of a master of, and Buddhists will call it a, a metta exercise or a loving-kindness loving meditation. Can you, can you describe it, how to, how to use this mental exercise? Because I think it's a, it's a very powerful technique, and it's something that in your book, Altered Traits, you, you could show really scientifically um, the impact of this kind of exercise actually on the wiring of the brain.
2: Uh, I like to think of it as the circle of caring, uh, where you uh, bring to mind someone who's been kind to you in your life, who cared about you, a parent or a teacher or whoever it might be, a friend, and you wish them well. You wish that they be happy, uh, that they n- not have suffering, uh, that they have a healthy, thriving life. Uh, you wish that silently with that person in mind. And then you bring that same focus to yourself and wish that for yourself. And then to people you love, your closest circle, and then to people you know, but are outside that circle, uh, people in your vicinity, in your area, and finally to everyone everywhere. Now, this is, uh, you could say, an exercise in compassion, but we've found in research that the brain wants to have this kind of loving kindness attitude, uh, and that the circuits for it get stronger pretty quickly, surprisingly quickly, uh, and the more you do it, the stronger they get.
1: And this book, Altered Traits, that I mentioned that you wrote with um, Richard Davidson, your old friend who's a famous neuroscientist, I think, at the University of Wisconsin, he, he was doing brain scans of great practitioners using using this kind of t- technique, people like Mingyur Rinpoche, Sokni Rinpoche's brother. What, for, for cynics who look at this and think, ah, oh, this is kind of hokey, I'm never going to do this, what did you actually see in terms of the brain circuitry when people use this kind of empathy-building exercise?
2: Well, we'll take uh, Mingyur. Uh, he, he was rather spectacular. Uh, the circuitry for compassion in his brain increased uh, its activity by seven or 800 percent, which has never been seen in neuroscience before, that uh, a voluntary shift in mindset could uh, activate the brain to that great degree. Uh, And basically, we find that the more you do this kind of practice, the stronger the circuits for that, uh, remember, the third kind of empathy, caring, become.
1: One of of the great lines from charlie munger the uh, buffett's partner who just passed away just short of his 100th birthday um one of his great lines that i i think about a lot is he just said take a good idea take a simple idea and take it seriously and it strikes me when you come across a good idea like like this like doing this kind of um circle of um circle of caring expanding the circle of caring meditation exercise whatever you want to call it or you know doing doing an exercise to pay attention to your breathing so you become more focused like when you find these um these tools that are clearly powerful that the 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 data shows work you you want to find one or two of them that really deeply resonate for you and then go big on them and then use them kind of consistently over a long period of time can you talk about that because it seems to me There's, with all of these things, as you would put it, there's a dose response. There's something about using them consistently over time that seems to be extraordinarily powerful cumulatively.
2: Well, what we found really uh, underlines, underscores the importance of practice. We found that the more you do it, one one of the, uh, the better the effect, the more you do it, the better the effect. Uh, One of the uh, metrics that we used or has been used commonly is lifetime hours of practice and you would ask the same of a tennis pro you know how many hours a day have you practiced your stroke your serve and they can give you a you know an answer to that you ask a meditator uh, how many hours of the day and for how long over a month or year or whatever uh, do you meditate and you get a, a score and we found there was a pretty strong correlation between the hours you put into practice, and the impact, the way your brain functions, the many, many different metrics, actually. The,
1: the fourth domain and the final domain is, um, is relationship skills, managing relationships. And this is clearly very heavily related to leadership skills. Yeah. You, you've written at some length in the book about how important it is for leaders to have more empathy, to become better listeners. One of the things I was very struck by in terms of how leaders need to get better with emotional intelligence uh, tools was how to give better feedback. And you wrote very interestingly about the regular difficulties that people get themselves into when giving feedback. Can you talk about that as a kind of emblem of um, how to be a better, more emotionally intelligent leader?
2: Yeah. So the worst way to give feedback is the way it's most commonly done. Which is a once a year performance review (laughs) where you kind of sum up in a year. The best feedback is actually in the moment because Mm. uh, if you can help a person see that what they're doing is counterproductive and what would be better right then, you're basically coaching them. You're helping them. It's the growth mindset. You're helping them improve. You're helping them develop their skill set. So I would say uh, feedback that is not just critical like, oh, you really screwed up that time, uh, but acknowledges a weakness, and then then follows that with what would be better. What's the, what, that makes it a learning experience for the person. Uh, and that, I think, is a much more constructive kind of feedback. There are people who are, we call them pace-setters in our research, who, uh, you know, they're those outstanding people. Uh, you mentioned a few, maybe who are just amazing individual performers, who then expect everyone else to be as good as they are. Nobody else is as good as they are, Mm -hmm. by definition. If you're a leader in an organization, you have unevenness. You have, everyone has their profile of strengths and limitations in this domain. And you do not want to give feedback which is dismissive. You're bad at X, and uh, that's it. That is the uh, maybe that's the way you got so good because you looked at what you did wrong all the time you didn't celebrate what you did right, but if you want to be a leader who motivates people, you want to celebrate wins and strengths as well as weaknesses. so you want feedback that acknowledges uh, what went wrong, but also says what to do better. I mean the worst way to start a meeting, it turns out is to um, ask for people to talk about uh, the metrics of their performance. The best way is to remind people of the mission that matters to all of us about what we're doing. Uh, And we have uh, interesting brain research uh, done at Case Western um, that says that if you give performance feedback uh, that focuses on what a person did wrong, which sadly is too common, Uh, They become very defensive. They uh, they're not creative. They don't want to take a risk. They get too cautious. If you tell people what they did right, uh, you get quite the opposite effect. Then you get the you get an optimal state rather than uh, people going into a crouch, a defensive crouch.
1: So again, in a way, for organizations, and a a big part of the book is how to create emotionally intelligent organizations, it's about creating some degree of psychological safety for people where they're they're not feeling attacked and the like. It's it's, uh, it's a a sense of belonging, a sense of safety, a sense that you can make mistakes, that you can learn, and the like.
2: And uh, I think that last element is critical, too, that you give people opportunities to get better, to improve. You have a training development program, which is robust in this area rather than minimalistic as it too often is, uh, but where people can go through a systematic uh, course of improvement, whether it's coaching, if they're at the top of the house, or uh, through a HR's program, if they're middle management, whatever it may be. You don't want to just say, you can get better at this, but you also want to say, and here's how.
1: And when you look back on your own life, you've obviously had to handle a lot of a lot of partnerships, a lot of I mean, you've you've co-written books. Um, You've had business partnerships where people have commercialized your uh, your research, you've gone into companies to collaborate and uh, give them advice as a consultant, you've you've been married, you've had raised a, a son, I think. What have you figured out over the years in terms of your own ability to handle these relationships better where you look back and you think, God, I, I, I wish I'd known this at the time. I would have done this much better. Like, what can we learn from your own experience in terms of getting better relationships and collaborations?
2: I think I'm still learning. Uh, you're asking the wrong person. You should ask my wife. Question. Huh. <laughs> you know, uh, because I have, and we all do, cognitive bias. When it comes to thinking about my own strengths. So, for example, uh, in uh, working with other people, I found that it's very helpful to uh, articulate implicitly or explicitly what matters to this group. What's the big meaning here? What's the underlying purpose of what we're doing? And also to uh, celebrate that at the outset, which I think marshals people's best motivation. You know, I have six grandchildren. I think I was what they call a good enough parent. Not outstanding, but not bad. Uh, And uh, I'm very happy with how my grandchildren are turning out. which suggests that my kids uh, either are doing okay or made very good choices in their wives. I have two sons. Uh, So I think that it's a learning curve, and it's a learning curve for us all.
1: I, I wanted to ask you about one final thing before I let you go, Dan, where you, you talk at one point, you, you talk about joyful exploration and this kind of spirit of joyful exploration and creative thinking. And you talk about having met people like Maya Lin, who designed the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, who in some ways Im- embodies it. Can you talk a little bit more about the importance of just this, this spirit of curiosity and joyful exploration which i i think must have run through your work over the last half century or so because you've gone in in somewhat unexpected directions over the years
2: uh yes joyful curiosity i would say curiosity or uh looking into things i didn't know much about because it mattered to me has been a driver uh, I'm, I'm basically actually a writer uh, and you are too and uh, i write about what i want to think about and I think it's a, a, a great, um, I would say I'm lucky to be able to do this, uh, to explore where I want to go. And I find pleasure in it. So it's it, that curiosity itself is joyful.
1: I feel in some ways when I look at your career, one of the things that I love about it is that you've also brought together these very disparate things as part of that exploration. So sort of in your, in your own life away from work, you were studying a lot of Tibetan Buddhism and the like. And then in your work as a science writer, you were discovering all of the ways in which these Tibetan Buddhists a couple of thousand years ago had figured stuff out about the mind and the brain that turned out to be true. I think that's a, there's, a, there's a fascinating kind of underlying arc in your life where you've, you've brought together these two, these two great passions where you were, very, you were so open-minded that you were exploring this thing that hadn't yet been proven scientifically about how these ancient practices, these, these meditative practices could benefit you. And then, and then you rode this wave of figuring out um, how the science backed up what, what these ancient paths had figured
2: out. So over the years, actually, I didn't start with Tibetan Buddhism. I uh, started with... Uh, probably TM or one of those, then segued to what's called Vipassana or mindfulness. And then uh, I found Tibetan teachers to be particularly inspiring. But um, this is my next book, William. (laughs) Well,
1: I hope you're going to come back and talk about that. Is there any final word of advice you want to leave us with, Dan, for our listeners who are thinking about how to build emotional intelligence skills, like if they're really serious about becoming truly skillful about this, is there any last word of advice you'd like to leave them with?
2: I I think there are three aspects of emotional intelligence that matter to everyone. One is self-awareness, one is managing your inner life, and the third is empathy, sensing what other people are feeling and thinking. All of them matter, and all of them can be improved
1: on that note dan thank you so much it's always such a delight speaking with you and uh I, i i really appreciate your patience in in answering a million questions thank you so much
2: it's always a delight to talk to you william thank you my pleasure thank you
1: all right folks thanks so much for joining me for today's conversation with daniel goleman if you'd like to learn more from dan you may want to check out our two previous conversations on the richer wiser happier podcast In 2022, we had an incredibly rich discussion that focused primarily on how investors can learn to manage their emotions more effectively, which is clearly crucially important for any investor. That episode was titled The Emotionally Intelligent Investor. Then in 2023, Dan returned to the podcast along with a wonderful Tibetan Buddhist meditation master named Sokni Rinpoche to discuss a book that they'd co-authored titled Why We Meditate although the book really deals with a lot more than that title would convey. I've included links to both of those conversations in the show notes for today's episode, along with links to various other resources that I hope you'll find helpful. I'd also strongly encourage you to read some of Dan's books. He's written about 13 of them. The most famous, obviously, is his seminal book on emotional intelligence, which is great and important. It's also worth reading his new book, Optimal, which I think is particularly valuable if you're in any kind of leadership position. I'm also a big fan of a book that Dan co-authored called Altered Traits, which explores the scientific evidence that meditation has a really profound impact on your mind and brain and body. Whenever I chat with Dan, it strikes me that he's a living advertisement for the many benefits of meditation, because he always seems exceptionally calm and present, and also very compassionate and amiable and cheerful. He's become a really great role model for me, and I sometimes joke that he's what I want to be like when I grow up. In the meantime, please feel free to follow me on X or Twitter at WilliamGreen72. And as always, do let me know how you're liking the podcast. It's always a real pleasure to hear from you. I'll be back very soon with some more fascinating guests, including Laura Gerrits, a renowned international investor who played a starring role in my book, Richer, Wiser, Happier. Until then, stay well and take good care.
0: Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to follow Richer, Wiser, Happier on your favorite podcast app and never miss out on episodes. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investor's Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.